This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Many people, I suppose, I, I understand anyways, I'm not really sure, but I understand that many people today were down at Niagara Falls to watch Arendira Walenda hang by her teeth from a helicopter over the falls. And I'm told this was a big deal. Now, I was not watching live. I saw some video clips of it, and I've read some stories about it since. And I'm kind of feeling like maybe I've been dulled, or maybe I'm missing something. But I'm struggling to understand why this was a big deal, why this mattered, why I should have been blown away by this. And here's why. Here's why I'm having trouble with it. She's in a heli- She's outside a helicopter. She's there's a, a wires hanging down. She's got a hula hoop that she's in, and there's a thing that she's grasping onto with her teeth. So for part of the time, she is hanging by her teeth. Well, okay, that, that over Niagara Falls, and that on its face sounds pretty cool because there's some real danger there. I mean, I don't want her to plummet to her death by any stretch, but you know that would be wow. She's she's over Niagara Falls, just hanging by her teeth. What could possibly happen? This could be terrible. And then you realize, wait a second, she's attached by a harness. So worst case scenario, she falls like six feet and then they go, oh, Arendira fell. We're going to fly her back to the land now. And they take off with the helicopter and the chopper. I mean, it, it. What? where's the danger? Where's the risk? Where's the, where's the part of this that I'm supposed to be blown away by? Like even when when Nick, her husband, remember about five years ago when Nick walked across Niagara Falls on the tightrope on the on the wire. Okay, he was also harnessed. But at least when he was going across, you realized if he falls and is now dangling ten feet below the wire, how exactly do they rescue him? Because you can't bring a helicopter up because the chopper blades would get caught in the wire. So how how do you get him down? If he falls. So there was some, huh, this could be dangerous. And maybe maybe it's a terrible thing that we're judging stunts now based on their danger. But isn't that the whole point of them? But anyway, so his seemed to me to have an element of, oh, this could go terribly wrong and might be fascinating to watch. And again, that may be cold and callous and mean sounding. But come on, is there any reason anybody's watching these stunts except to see them Maybe go wrong. That's the danger. That's why you watch it. But if you're strapped to the helicopter and if she falls, all they do is fly her back to land and put her down and there's no chance anything could possibly bad happen to her. What's the point? I'm not trying to be, you know, I'm sure she's got very, I'm sure she's got very strong teeth. Is that, is that the, the end result? Is that the takeaway from this? Oh, look at that. Arendira Walenda has really strong teeth. And maybe what we're going to see is three weeks from now, a bunch of like dental commercials from those guys in Hamilton who do the dental commercials on TV going, I'm sitting here next to Arendira Walenda. She's got great teeth. She hung by her teeth over Niagara Falls. I mean, maybe that's what this whole thing is about. I don't know. But Will, when you, I don't know. Did you watch any of this today? I didn't get, I've seen little clips. That's about it. What am I missing? What is the what is the thrill here that I am missing that that would lead me to say I gotta see this? That I had to get up early to see this today, or I had to drive to Niagara Falls. What would be? What's the? What am I missing? I I, I I'm honestly I am on the same page as you. Uh, I think. I mean, maybe some people who are really morbid and are hoping for hey maybe a lot of things could go wrong and she's really risking her life, but I. 
But isn't that the whole? If you're having a stunt, yeah, like the, the, the whole premise of a stunt is that there is danger involved. You're watching because your adrenaline is pumping because if this doesn't work, something horrible is going to happen. And again, I don't think anyone is hoping that, oh, I'm going to tune in and watch someone fall to their death. That's not what you're thinking. Yeah. You know what? But what's the... If if there's no danger, why doesn't she just stand in a gymnasium <laughs> with a thing dangling down a foot off the ground and hang by her mouth? What's Why up in the air? Yeah. See, I, I would think the the aspect of the stunt is is the human performance. What can this human do? Like, the point of it act does seem to be, look how powerful her teeth are. She's holding on to this. She's had great root canals. She, yeah, fantastic, and really could get some sponsorship deals. But uh, ultimately, yeah, there is no no real danger. I don't know. This is my problem with roller coasters. I'm terrified to go on roller coasters. I have friends who they have to push me on. They have to keep me in line. I have ditched lines. But once you get me on one... I realize either this is going to go smoothly and I'm just going to go up and down for a while or something terrible is going to happen. I'm going to go flying off a roller coaster, but there's no real suspense anymore. If there was if a, if a theme park made a vow that randomly one out of every thousand rides on the roller coaster, it was going to derail and people were going to plummet. Now you've got adrenaline going when you're on the roller coaster, but we don't want that, right? We don't want to know that that could happen. We want to just have, go fast. So I'm, I'm thinking about this because when you go back in time, like when Harry Houdini was was chaining himself, getting wrapped up in chains in a straitjacket and being dunked into a tank of water and stuff, The I don't think, I mean, I don't know how he did the trick. I, I'm not a magician, but I don't think there was a thing where he was hooked to a wire so they could yank him out like there was the belief that harry houdini could die yeah and when people that you know with um what's his name the guy who does the uh, street magic david blaine yeah with some of the stuff he's done all right which again some of it has been like odd to me like sitting in a box for four days or something it's like okay well you know it's like that it's like the um that movie with uh um who were they? The two magicians. The comedy with the two magicians where they decide to go into the box above Las Vegas and the, 10 minutes later they're out. But anyway, um, the fact is in the past, the stunt meant evil can evil for those who remember back far enough for evil can evil. There was real uh, and let's be honest, every stunt evil can evil did pretty much ended terribly. There was barely a jump that he did that some part of his body was not mashed into applesauce. But the fact is, that was what made us as people intrigued by it. And again, that may say more about us and our sadistic nature, that we only are fascinated by a stunt if there is a chance that it could go horribly awry. But you watched Evil Knievel because you knew he's either going to make it, and that's going to be, wow, or... Ugh. And remember, like again, for people old enough to remember, I was a kid when this happened. I've read about it. I've seen the video. But when he jumped the the sharks at at Caesar's Palace, the, the, there was a like a big pond of sharks. If you've ever read, there's a book by Lee Montville who used to write for Sports Illustrated that's been written about Evil Knievel's life. If you want to read a great book, read that one. I think it's just called Evil E V E L. But the inside story is. They built this thing up that Evil Knievel is jumping over sharks. What they didn't tell you was that they were basically passive sharks and they'd been heavily, heavily fed for days before so that they were so full. They were like 
diners at a buffet in Vegas where they couldn't stuff another meatball into their mouth. Like they, if if he had fallen in, they would have swum by and, oh, I'm too full to eat. But we didn't know that. The belief was that evil can evil could have been devoured by hungry sharks if he didn't do it right. And when he was jumping the Snake River Canyon, or whatever you called what he did, he sort of it took off and the parachute came out and he fell. But the belief was, oh man, this could be horrible. I don't get what part of Arendira Walenda's routine was supposed to fill me with awe and wonder today. I'm sure she's a lovely woman. As we've said, her dental work is world-class, and her jaw strength, her grip strength in her jaw, she could probably pop open bottles of beer with her teeth with no problem. I mean, so if that's what this whole thing was about, just like clamp strength with her jaw, well, bravo. I mean, bravo. That was that was a, a terrific stunt. Today. I don't get it otherwise. I just don't. What, well, what would today? Now... Because of lawsuits and because of liability and everything else, we're never probably going to see someone actually do something. But what would be there left today that somebody could do that would really sort of make blow you away and make you go, wow, I would actually go out of my way to watch that stunt. I can only think of one kind of thing, and I don't really want to see this for the very reason why it would be watch it would be so cool to watch because it would almost certainly be guaranteed to end up with someone getting seriously hurt. What is it? You ever seen those things where you see videos where a car is driving towards someone who jumps right before the car comes and they go yes. over, they have a low sports car and the guy yeah. jumps and the car goes under his feet. I don't really want to go and see that live because the chances, if especially if the car is moving fast, if your timing is off by just a bit, you catch your toes on the hood of the car and your face goes through the windshield and you're dead. So the what makes it intriguing is also why I don't want to watch it. Yeah. I'm thinking of I saw a video once. I am not encouraging any listener to ever None do of this, this stuff at all. Yeah, exactly. But I saw a video. It was a dude in uh Dubai and he was free running. He was doing parkour along the edge of this expensive high up hotel he was staying in. And he was jumping along, and he was jumping from balcony to balcony, and he was filming it with his phone. I've seen people try to film things with their phone and walk into trees on the sidewalk. So how he was doing this is baffling. I would never do it myself, and I'm not encouraging anyone to do it. But something like that? Well, we had that woman in Toronto on the crane a few weeks ago who was hanging there. Yes. I don't think she was a stunt, though. Well, I don't know what it was, but I'm looking at that going, okay, so... I'm I'm stuck here between the fact that I'm not wanting to watch her because I don't want to see her slip and fall to her death. That's not within my Yeah. That that doesn't intrigue me whatsoever. Seeing someone fall and die doesn't get my adrenaline pumping in any way. No. I have no interest in seeing that. At the same time, seeing someone do a stunt where there is no risk, but trying to pretend there's risk is not of interest to me either. You know what it kind of reminds me of? And I wonder if this is part of it. It's like rooting for the little guy, right? Like the sports team that never never performs the best. They, you know, they're they're the underdog. And so when we see humans pulling a stunt like this, it's like they are the underdog in the face of of 
physics and fate and, and yeah, but she odds. wasn't though because she no, was I attached know, to I know, the helicopter. I, I, no. yeah, that's I, I guess removed. I guess my point is I guess what I'm thinking about this thing is are we past and maybe this is it, are we past the point in our society, in our civilization where these things serve any purpose anymore? Honestly, like I'm not I'm not trying to be totally you know, downer right now, but there was a time when people would line up to go see Harry Houdini or whatever, and you would gasp because there was a chance. We, we seemed that, that we don't allow the risk. We don't really want the risk, but we're not impressed when there is no risk. So there's this gray, mushy middle where we really can't be. And so anyway, I just, I, I, I saw, I heard a lot of people talking about it today. I, I, I recognize that a bunch of people went to Niagara Falls to watch. I don't get it at all. I just don't get it. I, 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 Again, I'm sure she is a wonderful, lovely woman who has many talents. I just don't know what I was supposed to take from this today. Anyway, but I would encourage her husband to do the walk again, because again, that you go, okay, if he falls, there's some intrigue here. He's going to live, but how in the world? Now, it was less about him. See, the point with him was I didn't really care if he fell because he was going to be safe. How are the rescuers? Do they have to send someone else out there now and then lift him up? And then it's like the one on top of the other shoulder. I mean, how do you do it? That See, that to me is I would have rather watched the test drive of the rescue than to watch him. I don't know if they had a I mean, I assume they had a plan. But man, wouldn't that have been a cool thing to watch if they had no plan? And now for like four days, he's stuck up there just dangling, blowing in the breeze. See that? Now there's entertainment. There's entertainment. We're just dropping water bottles to him, hoping he can catch him so he has something to drink. And th- see, that would be entertaining to watch. The rescue of Nick Walenda. I think you've got a good reality show, Scott. <laughs> you should pitch this. It'd be like Survivor on Tightrope. We're going to have 16 contestants attached by a cord to a wire 100 feet above the ground. And for 30 days, they dangle there. And as they get voted off, they just have someone come with a big ladder and take them down. And after 30 days, whoever's still there with... See, now we've got a show. We've got a show. And Erin Deere can be there hanging by her teeth, I suppose. She can be the exception. She doesn't want to have it hooked around her waist. She wants it around her teeth. And 30 days later when she has the world's worst case of lockjaw and no teeth left because they've all fallen out. I just, if, you, if, you were, if you were really moved and really excited by this thing today, and I, I'm not saying you shouldn't have been. Maybe, I, maybe I'm just so cynical and I'm just so jaded now having seen stuff that I don't get it, but maybe you did. Maybe you were moved and overwhelmed and intrigued and blown away, let me know. Because I would love to hear a different point of view on this one. Radley at 900CHML.com. If you think this was really outstanding, and you're fully entitled to. In fact, I hope you do, because I like to think that not everybody is as jaded as me sometimes. I like to believe there are still those who can be awed, A-W-E-D, not O-D-D, A-W-E-D, by, these, by stuff. Because sometimes I find I can't, it's, it's hard for me to be blown away by certain things, and this is one of them. But let me know. Radley at 900CHML.com. Love to hear from you. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. You certainly must have heard over the past week, I think it was Sunday night, that the Pittsburgh Penguins won the Stanley Cup. I assume you heard that. And probably some of you watched either 
the thing or clips or saw highlights of the Pittsburgh Penguins Stanley Cup parade yesterday, which was, they said 650,000 people were lining the streets, which was a quarter million than last year. Not sure why the second one would be bigger than the first one, but anyway, it was 650,000 people. It was a big, big deal. And what also, so that, that's the starting point. That's our jumping off point today. But also, what makes this story and what makes the Penguin Stanley Cup also interesting is that right about now, 50 years ago, the summer of 1967, the six teams that were making up the original expansion in the NHL were getting ready to become real teams. The original six had ended with the Maple Leafs winning the Stanley Cup in 1967. And now you had... Can you name the teams that were coming into the NHL? Pittsburgh, that's right. Los Angeles Kings, Minnesota North Stars, California Seals, St. Louis Blues, and Philadelphia Flyers. They were all getting ready to come in to the NHL now, 50 years ago, right now. Now, Pittsburgh would go on. They would have their first training camp. You may not know this. You may know this. You may have been there, some of you. They had their first training camp just up the road in Brantford at what was then the brand new Brantford Civic Center, which is the point at which I will bring in my next guest. Uh, Kevin Shea is a hockey writer, a hockey historian. We've had him on before to talk hockey. Uh, And he's just written a great piece about the Pittsburgh Penguins launching the beginning of the Pittsburgh Penguins franchise, which probably... Kevin, I'm guessing in a lot of ways the stories may be slightly different. The anecdotes might be slightly different, but I bet that this is probably pretty close to the stories that you would find from any of the six teams that had launched that summer. Oh, Scott, absolutely. It was a a very crazy time, and the the owners had held off any expansion for 25 years, and finally they acquiesced and realized that to grow, they they needed to expand, and they did exactly that in 1967 for the 67-68 season. And yet, as we look back now, the Penguins must have done something right, even though we're jumping way ahead, because they have won five Stanley Cups now. That is as many as all the other five expansion teams from then combined have won. They've done something okay. Yeah, they certainly have. And you have to think that through the years, there are peaks and valleys for every team. But boy, oh boy, Pittsburgh has had more than their fair share. So the the Stanley Cups are basically as a result of the, of the team bottoming out. In fact, yes. close to bankruptcy. And being able to draft, first of all, Mario Lemieux, and then uh, in the second second phase, Sidney Crosby, who those two were the principals and contributed to those five Stanley Cup championships. So it's it's quite an extraordinary story. They are exceptional at winning draft lotteries. They sure are. <laughs> if, they sure are. They may be, other than the Edmonton Oilers, they may be the best ever at, uh, at and also if Jenny Malkin, who was also uh, a, you know a first overall pick. All right, let's go back though to the summer of 1967. And again, the Pittsburgh Penguins are. One, we could talk about any of the six, but because they won the cup, this is and because you wrote this great piece, let's go back to the expansion draft of 1967. Because the teams, like we're facing, like we're looking at right now with Las Vegas, teams were allowed to protect some guys, and other guys were exposed. And when I looked today before you came on, Kevin, and started the, the way this worked was the first two rounds, the teams had to pick their goalies first. The first two rounds were for goalies. And guys like Terry Sawchuk was taken, and Bernie Perrant was taken, and Glenn Hall was taken. And then Pittsburgh gets their two choices, <laughs> and they take Joe Daly and Roy Edwards. Who are these guys? Well, I mean, they were, they were both 
prospects, I guess, or or aged players who just <laughs> hadn't had their chance to uh, to make it at that point. Uh, Daly with the Red Wings and Edwards with Chicago. Neither one of them ever played for the Pittsburgh Penguins, but they were really used as as kind of barter to get futures. And, and ultimately, it was guys like Les Binkley and, and Hank Basson who ended up being the goaltenders for the Penguins back in 67. But it just shows you that, I mean, even back then, uh, if they didn't get the first overall pick, the Penguins weren't actually great at picking up who they wanted to get. Those were um, Roy Edwards, by the way, for those who are wondering. Roy is the uncle of Don Edwards, who is a local guy from around here who played for the Buffalo Sabres and even the Maple Leafs for a, a brief time. Um, but you said Les Binkley is really the guy who was... Well, tell me about Les Binkley at that time. Was he an, a, a sort of a, a, a washed-up veteran by that point who sort of just found the... Basically, basically he was a, a career minor leaguer. You have to remember that... Uh, for the for the vast number of years of the original six era, there was only one goaltender. It wasn't until per team rather um, until the early '60s when they started to infiltrate a backup goaltender as well. And Les Binkley really never got his shot. You know, he was a very good goaltender and had won some awards in the minor leagues, but never really got his shot. And, and I'm sure he just figured he was going to play out his career. It was a decent living. It's what he knew to do. And there we go. And all of a sudden, he gets a shot to make it to the National Hockey League and I don't know he certainly wasn't the oldest rookie ever but he certainly was one of the oldest rookies at that point well into his 30s and he got a chance to step in and he starred he was in in my estimation anyway he was the star of the team during that season despite the fact that he got injured later in the season well great Les Binkley story I don't know if you know if you know this one Kevin a couple of years ago uh, before they tore down the old Kaneski store where the hockey pad was invented where the goalie pad was invented Joel Hulsman, the guy who owns the place, is sitting in his front door. This is 2015, and a Purolator guy shows up with a big box, and Joel opens it up and nearly falls off his chair. It's a pair, the last pair that he's ever been aware of, of mint condition goalie pads that were handcrafted by Pops Kineski. For some reason, they were never worn, and on the top was written in ink by Pops himself, Les Binkley. Oh, my goodness. And they showed up, and someone had them and sent them back, and they had been made for Les Binkley, who I guess had retired before he ever got around to wearing them, or they never got delivered. I don't know why. but there, So there, there's the Les Binkley connection to Hamilton anyway. Let me throw you one more Les Binkley story, if I might. So I got a chance to meet him, oh, many years ago, just fortuitously through a, a mutual friend. And, and uh, so he was telling us that one of his most embarrassing moments was playing with the Penguins, and he wasn't starting that night. He was the backup goaltender. And he figured he had no shot of getting on the ice, so he had the usher bring over a hot dog. <laughs> and wouldn't you know, he gets the tap on the shoulder just as he's finished his first bite. And, hey, Binkley, get ready, you're out there. Oh, my God, he shoves the hot dog down his pad, his left pad, goes out there and skates. Wouldn't you know, the hot dog falls off his pad <laughs> as he makes his way to the crease. Now, whether it's uh, urban legend or not, but it's just a great hockey story from a great guy. <laughs> I hope it's true. It's I a great story too. if it I is. I really do. All right, let's go back to the draft for a second, though, because here's where I really get confused. All right, they, 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 have, they have opportunities, perhaps, to get good goalies. They don't do that. But we get there's 20 rounds in this first draft. Right. You get to round 19, and they draft Andy Bathgate. How in the name of everything that is good and holy does Andy Bathgate last until the 19th round? Because everybody around him is a nobody. Yeah, you're right. Well, I mean, there, there were some who had played a little bit and were prospects and whatever, but Bathgate was the sole real star at that point. But there were s several things going on right then. First of all, he was well into his 30s, probably early 30s at that point. So in hockey parlance back in those days, that seems like, well, the career's almost over. 
he was making a great deal of money. As I recall, he was close to $75,000. I could be wrong, but which was astronomical at that time. And so people shied away. And thirdly, he had said that if he was uh, chosen by anybody, he would likely retire. And so All right. that's why they waited so long and then f- thought, you know what? We only have two picks left. Let's gamble. I think we can talk him into coming to play, and that's exactly what happened. They chose him with their 19th pick overall, convinced Andy Bathgate uh, that he could continue his career, and they would pay him very well, and he would be the star of the team, which really uh, proved out to be true. And uh, he played. He just played a season with them, went on to play with the Vancouver Canucks of the uh, Western Hockey League, and then came back and finished his career, at least in his National Hockey League career, with the Pittsburgh Penguins as well. So... So, uh, you know, it's, it's quite a great story, but, uh, yeah, he was, he was the star of the team, certainly uh, offensively anyway, that first season. All right, so Pittsburgh is a—I've driven there many times, well, a number of times. It's not next door to Brantford, Ontario. How in the world do they end up playing their training camp, to find, deciding to have their first training camp in Brantford? Well, so when you talked to me about that uh, earlier, certainly when you emailed me earlier, I, I tried to find out, and I can't get an answer. Now, it was odd at that point, because the Boston Bruins would have their camp in London, Ontario, and you know the Maple Leafs had their camp in various places, Owen Sound and St. Catharines, and, and uh, just different places through the years. I can't find the dotted line connection. I'm trying to think whether one of the owners was from the area, uh, the general manager maybe, uh, tough to say, but there there had to be a reason. I can't figure it out for the life of me, Scott. Well, they finally get around to playing. Their first game is in front of 9,000 people, which Las Vegas had to guarantee more season tickets than that just to get a franchise, <laughs> um, which blows me away that you've got an NHL team and you're playing the Canadians, who back then had Jean Beliveau and a bunch of other superstars, and they only got 9,000 out to start. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they had hyped it up through the summertime. There's no doubt about it. Uh, they, Not well they, enough, apparently. That's exactly it. You know, they, they named the team the Penguins because they were playing at the Civic Auditorium, which was called the Igloo at the time. And, you know, they did all the marketing. Wait a sec. The Igloo could... was called the Igloo before they were called the Penguins? I figured the no, Igloo no, no, was no, named that, that because they were the Penguins. No, the arena was called the Igloo. Beforehand. Wow. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because they had an American Hockey League team called the Pittsburgh Hornets at that time, and there was actually a contest to see, you know, name the team. And you know, Hornets was brought up, but people thought, no, too much confusion. And a number of uh, a number of names came forward, and it was the Penguins that ultimately won. So they called themselves the Penguins, and uh, they hyped it through the the course of the the summer leading into the fall. And you're right, they only got nine thousand that first game, and you know, it didn't get much better as time went on. So with certain with certain teams, they would do a little bit better and Saturday nights obviously not obviously necessarily but Saturday nights were a prime time to watch hockey too but you know it was not it was not the 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 mass appeal uh, cavalcade of stars and and of people lining up to get season tickets that it would be today (laughs) well and so one of the things they did to try to build interest I guess and this is one of my favorite parts of the story (laughs) of the Pittsburgh Penguins is they got a mascot tell us the story of the mascot (laughs) Well, they got a, a mascot, and and because they were the Pittsburgh Penguins, let's see, we, well, we could have a fuzzy character, or we could have a real penguin. Wait a minute. So they had Pete the Penguin. <laughs> now, the owner had... Uh, had Where did they get was, Pete? Well, he came from South America, but he was being taken care of at an aqua zoo at the time. I think that's what it was actually <laughs> called, but it was basically an aquarium. 
and they got him there. And he lived at the aquarium year-round, but he would come out for their home games, not all home games, but several home games. They actually had a trainer, a special trainer, to bring Pete out on the ice. They actually <laughs> ultimately got a pair of skates for, for Pete as well and tried to teach Pete how to, to skate, and he did in kind of a halting sort of wacky way. Penguins' legs aren't very long, and they certainly aren't made to skate, but they tried everything they could. So here's Pete on a leash being led out to center ice to uh, to be applauded uh, uh, towards by the uh, the crowds there. and. Oh, Pete uh, was out there for, I don't know whether it was four or five games that year, and, and it was started in February of 67, uh, 68, actually, pardon me, and then they were really going to launch it in 68, 69, and, and they did the first few games with Pete, but then Pete got sick, and they, uh, they couldn't figure out what was wrong, took him to the vet, and the vet said, well, Pete's got pneumonia. <laughs> He's a penguin. How does a penguin get pneumonia? <laughs> That's exactly what the owner said. Wait a minute. He's from uh, from Antarctica, for God's sake. How does a penguin get pneumonia? Well, they said, well, he's got it. And sure enough, Pete succumbed to his illness and, <laughs> and passed away not too long thereafter. The owner had him uh, had him stuffed and uh, <laughs> of course put him he in did. the office, and he was stolen. Somebody stole Pete the penguin. They never have found Pete. <laughs> Pete is on the lamb right now. Exactly. But they thought, well, we better get another mascot out there. So they got uh, a second one, and they called him repeat and so they had repeat the penguin but repeat didn't last long he didn't suffer from his the same illness they just figured you know what it was a good idea in principle in reality it wasn't so good so, I, I i think we should put out an apb right now on the 50th anniversary to find the original pete you know somewhere somebody's out there laughing their their fool heads off because they've got pete the penguin the <laughs> the, the stuffed penguin from the penguins either that or who knows he was uh, disposed of years ago because he started to smell i don't know what the story is scott <laughs> they they were not very good though that first year like exp- by the way for those who don't remember explain how the first season worked because it was unique in NHL lore of how they broke down the 12 teams. Yeah, sure. So the original six teams, the ones that had been in the league for uh, solely since 1920, uh, what am I saying here? Sorry, since 1942-43, pardon me. Uh, they stayed in what was called the East Division, and the most westerly team at that point would have been the Chicago Blackhawks. They put all of the expansion teams, the six that you named earlier, into the Western Division. And so it was an interlocking schedule. They mostly played against their own division rivals, but they played games against the the original six, too. Ironically, the only one of the original six that they had any success against was the lowly Toronto Maple Leafs. Shocker, right? Yeah, there we go. (laughs) They won two games, lost one, and tied one against the Leafs that season. So they played against uh, pl- they played in their own division, but they had some interlocking games, as I mentioned. And then when it came to the Stanley Cup final, it was the champion of the West Division against the champion of the East Division. Well, the problem was the the champion of the West Division, which was the expansion teams, wasn't nearly as good as the uh, the champion of the East Division. Just they just didn't have the manpower. In fact, uh, the Philadelphia Flyers finished first. They had uh, I wrote it down here seventy three points. Pittsburgh Penguins missed the playoffs. They had 67 points. So they were only six points out of first place in the West Division. But the fact was they missed the playoffs. Philadelphia didn't even go on to the Stanley Cup final that season. It was St. Louis Blues, the first of, of three consecutive seasons they played against the uh, the Montreal Canadiens. With Scotty Bowman coaching the Blues. Exactly, yeah. Who had come from the Montreal Canadiens, ironically, too. It is. Uh, it's, did they ever get back to Brantford? Did they ever have another training camp there? 
I don't know. I tried to find that as well. And it's funny because I guess training camps, although it's really interesting to many, many people, doesn't seem to show up on the Internet very much. And I, I went through my research, uh, my, my research books here. I didn't get a chance to call anybody, but I'll have to follow up with you and just send you an email from one of the early players who tells us that they did or didn't uh, continue on and go from there. But Well, we're getting to that point, uh, Kevin, where, you know, Andy Bathgate passed away right. a, a year or two ago, and, and I looked up a number of these players are now, as, as you would expect, because they were generally veteran players into their 30s. As you said, we're, we're now talking about guys who are in their mid to late 80s, some of these guys now. Yeah, that's exactly true. And and although it was a, a glorious time for them to be able to continue their uh, continue their careers or to actually play in the NHL when they wouldn't have had a chance otherwise, you know the memories are are still there. But uh, the guys are are aged now, and so I'm hoping that I can get hold of Larry Jeffrey, who I know a little bit, lives up in Godrich, and and uh, maybe he can tell me a little bit more about uh, about the team at that time, or maybe some of my my uh, historian friends who know a little bit more about these things than I do at this moment. Well, I wanted to have you on because, again, it's it's a great story that you wrote. Uh, people can find it online. It's uh, it Society of International Hockey Research is where it was, but it was uh, you, they can find it through Google. But also, it is the 50th anniversary, and there's going to be a ton of stuff between now, I'm guessing, and the fall when the hockey season kicks off again. We're only four days, five days out of this season, but... Uh, I know that there is a guy, we had him on the radio on this show probably a year and a half or two years ago who has just done a documentary on the uh, California Golden Seals and their wildly colorful history. I think it's now available. I'll I'll have to find out where. But I'm guessing people are going to be getting these stories all over the place for the next few months. Well, exactly true. It's the National Hockey League's 100th anniversary this year. Um, the Toronto Maple Leafs have actually started. You know, the previous season will continue till end of December of, of 2017 as well. The NHL has all kinds of things. There'll be a number of books. There'll be teams like like the Pittsburgh Penguins who are celebrating their 50th anniversary. So we're going to see a lot of historical hockey over the next little while, Scott. That's no doubt about it. I really think you and I should uh, put together a Pete t-shirt and go down to Pittsburgh for a few days and just sell them on a street corner somewhere. I'm sure there's money to be made in the uh, in the Pete the Penguin shirts. Well, it's funny because so many people, I think there is actually, I think you've got something there. It's funny because when I was talking to people for a, a little piece that I was writing, people forgot about Pete, but as soon as I brought it up, oh my God, and they just loved the idea that Pete the Penguin had been the mascot for the Penguins, and everybody had such wonderful thoughts about it. Most didn't remember the fact that Pete had succumbed to pneumonia, (laughs) but I just think it's a great story, not very well known, and you're right, let's save Pete the Penguin and his little carcass, wherever it may be. Pete the Penguin on the front, Peter Puck on the back, got to get permission from Brian McFarlane, and away we go. You and I will be millionaires by this time next year. We'll have to do it bilingually, so we'll have to (laughs) Pierre Le Pierre Le as well, and Pierre Le Penguin, I guess. There we go. Kevin Shea. This has been fun, Scott. Always appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, Kevin is a a great hockey historian and uh, writes some great stuff. He's done some great stuff on the Leafs as well. One little thing before I go. What really amazed me when I looked today, because before I came on, I looked at the draft lists, the teams, who they drafted in the expansion draft back then. Vastly different from what you will see from the Las Vegas Golden Knights or the Vegas Golden Knights. You want to know why? Six teams, each team drafted 20 players, 120 players. Guess how many were not Canadian? Total, not per team, total. Eight. Only eight of the 120 were not Canadians, all the rest. And one team, I can't remember which one it was now, um... 
they were all Canadians. One team had 100% Canadians on the team. You don't see that so much anymore. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. It's an uncomfortable thing, I'm going to say, but I think it's probably true. You may have noticed as you walk around, either at your office or in public or wherever you go, you you may be thinking to yourself as you look around and do some people watching that there are more and more people that kind of look like they're a little on the heavy side. I mean, we don't want to be judging everyone. I understand that. But it does seem like there are a lot of people out there who are struggling with their weight. Well, a, st- a study, and I'm, I'm calling it a stunning new study because when I looked at this, when I saw this, man, I was, I literally, I was blown away by this. When I looked, at, I had to double check the numbers to make sure I had read them right because it really caught me off guard. It's a new global study that was on food and weight. And ready for this because these are, again, these are numbers that I just never imagined could be possible. One third of the people on this planet right now, over 2.2 billion, B, billion people are either overweight or, or, or obese. They are struggling with weight. One third of the planet is now dealing with this as an issue. And obviously, this is not just an aesthetic thing. It's not just how you look and how you fit a pair of pants. There are all kinds of issues that go along with this. The lead author on this study, Dr. Ashkan Afshin, is the acting assistant professor of global health at the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington. That's Washington State. He joins me now. Doctor, thanks for doing this tonight. Hi. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Uh, when I was reading this, considering, as I'm going through some of the numbers and I'm real, trying to figure this out, considering that we would say that much of the world is not rich. Much of the world doesn't have a ton of wealth like North America necessarily does. This really, really surprised me because it's, it seems anyway that this has been seen as, you know, if, if you live in a rich country, if you live where there's a lot of food, you can be overweight. But, gee, most of the world must be skinny. Yes. So this is actually one of the interesting findings of this study that we evaluated the prevalence of overweight and obesity across different levels of socioeconomic development. And what we saw, independent of level of socioeconomic development, people are getting overweight and obese, both children and adults. So we can say almost nobody is immune to this problem, regardless of the place that they are living and regardless of level of development of their country. So clearly not every country has the supply of food that we would have here in North America. So is the res- is this resulting then from the uh, what people are eating? It seems like it must. It must be from what people are eating in a lot of cases as opposed to simply the, the quantity that they're eating. Yes, so what we are seeing uh, basically globally is that uh, generally there is an increased availability and affordability of energy-dense food. And this change of food environment are uh, something that is basically more or less are seen in, are seen in many countries. And this uh, uh, increased accessibility is something not, 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 necessi- not necessarily basically uh, uh, specific to the developed countries. An example of that is sugar, sweet, and beverages. Uh, specifically, for example, different types of soda. Wherever you go over the world, there is very... Uh, you can uh, see easy access at a very low price to this type of product. And 
this is one of the reasons that people are getting overweight and obesity globally. As I understand it, and correct me if I make any, if I say anything wrong here, but I understand it. This was done in 195 countries around the world, and it was done over a span of 25 years. Is that correct? Yes, we collected data from 187 countries uh, across the time period. For a few other countries, basically, there is no data on overweight and obesity. And depending on other factors that determine overweight and obesity, we try to come up with the best estimate in those countries. So, uh, but the actual data that was obtained was uh, basically from 187 countries. And did we find, because this was done over a long period of time as well, have we seen an acceleration in recent years in the number of people who are now dealing with weight issues? Is this something that is picking up speed and more and more and more, per, the higher percentage of people are dealing with this? So we, uh, we have seen a continuous increase uh, globally and actually a level of socioeconomic development, but the rate of increase in different countries varies. Uh, for example, some countries start high and remain high, and some countries basically, uh, specifically some African countries, now they are basically uh, the prevalence of undernutrition in these countries are decreasing, but at the same time the prevalence of overweight and obesity at greater rate are increasing in these countries. And one of the important findings is that over this time period, the prevalence of obesity has been doubled in more than 70 uh, countries wow. uh, globally. Well, you said about the the prevalence and the availability of things like soft drinks and and sugary drinks and things like that. Is there anything that has changed that would suggest that people in certain places or certain uh, people groups are more predisposed to being overweight? Or is that that in large measure, would that be a cop-out if we said, oh, there are certain people that are just going to be bigger? No, I think that this is a general problem. Everybody basically exposed to the same set of, uh, we can call it, risk factor for obesity, and they are uh, equally exposed, and they are equally at risk. So we we now in our society, and I think generally, well, this is this is a good thing. I mean, we don't. It has become socially unacceptable, and it's a good thing not to embarrass people, not to mock people, not to make fun of people because of their weight. But I'm wondering if at the same time, not to say we want to go back to making fun of people, but if saying that whatever size you are is okay, and not saying that there is an ideal size or that being skinnier is healthier for you, has that allowed people to feel more comfortable with being heavier and saying it's fine to be where I am, even though perhaps they're taking on health problems? So I think uh, I think everybody agrees that obesity and overweight should not be a source of a stigma at the, popula- at the population. But at the same time, we should have this realization that by being overweight and obesity, we are exposing ourselves to a greater range of diseases. And like any other disorder that we should seek treatment, and we should seek opportunities. Uh, this is uh, the same for overweight and obesity. Uh, this, uh, I think it's important to acknowledge that being overweight and obesity is not normal and it's not healthy. And like any other conditions that affect ourselves, we need to look for opportunities and different methods to become more and more healthy. We, we obviously hear all the time 
that obesity and being overweight leads to, can lead to diabetes. That's a common thing we will hear, and to heart problems. What else? You talk about the health issues. What are other things that are commonly going to result in that our healthcare system is going to have to pay for from people being overweight? So as a part of this study, we evaluated other work that have been done in this area and found that uh, overweight and obesity is related to 20 different diseases. 20? 20? Yes, 20, 20 different diseases to zero. And this it includes heart diseases, stroke, uh, and also a wide range of cancers, uh, chronic kidney diseases, uh, diabetes. These are the uh, diseases that are that are cause of death. In addition to that, uh, there are some diseases are not necessarily fatal, but they are uh, they affect the quality of life. Musculoskeletal disorder, back pain, knee pain. These are other factors that basically they are not killing people, but they really significantly affect the quality of life. Dr. Ashton, this is going to be a strange question. I understand that, but before you came on today, when I knew I was going to be talking to you, I went online to learned something about you and I found a picture of you. And then I thought, you know what? I looked around at a few other people who I looked up and who were working in the work with overweight or weight area. Almost every expert that I could find had a proper, unless you put on a lot of weight since I saw your picture, which I don't think is the case. The experts all seem to be pretty skinny, pretty properly sized. I wonder if that's because those of you who study this really understand the dangers of it, and really understand that it's serious. Uh, that is an interesting question. So I think that this is a challenge uh, that we, all of us, have. And all of us basically exposed to this increased opportunity for consumption of different healthy foods, uh, unhealthy foods. Today, uh, I think that at least there has been 30 different opportunities uh, for me to basically consume different types of unhealthy food and constantly basically try to resist that. But this is, I, I admit that there are some opportunities. This is not always the case. So sometimes we are also, uh, we, specifically in a social setting, in a family setting, it might not be uh, fully basically possible to resist that. But uh, this is the active uh, uh, this is the basic continuous problem, and we are trying to basically uh, every time that I design myself, basically expose this opportunity for uh, uh, having unhealthy food. Just reminding us that what are the uh, what are the potential trade-offs and what are the uh, risks that are basically associated with this type of unhealthy food. Uh, just help me to resist a little bit more. It is a fascinating study. Uh, Dr. Ashkan Afshin from University of Washington, thank you so much for taking the time today. My pleasure. Thank you. We have a, a bit of a bad connection there, so I was just going to um, let it there because was, I, was I was finding it difficult to hear through the crackling. But it was interesting this afternoon when I went, I looked up, I was trying to get a little information about that doctor. And then I thought, I'm going to look around because there's, got to, there's a lot of other people who were either cited as people who were involved in this study, or I looked at a number of people who work at universities or other places who work in studying obesity, weight issues, that kind of thing. And I tell you, the the oddity to me, and I don't know, it was, it was just a weird thing. Every single person was on the skinny side. 
and if not skinny, I, I mean, I don't mean like skinny, skinny, but what you would describe as healthily proportioned. And I thought, you know, I, I just, I wonder if part of that is when you have seen the problems that this can cause, if it hits home and if you take it more seriously. But here's the other part about this. I think we're, regardless of what size we are, and we all, listen, everyone listening is across the spectrum. We're, I'm sure there are people listening who probably could afford to lose some pounds, and I'm sure there's people listening who are at a great weight, and maybe some people need to put on some weight. But we are fascinated in this country, in this society, by weight issues. And you need to look no further. I'll give you two examples. One, in the last couple of years, Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition has gone out of its way and has had two or three, I don't know, plus-size models included, which they never did before. But the other thing is, one of, and Will, maybe you have watched this before, I don't know, one of the most popular TV shows, reality TV shows on TLC right now. Do you know what it is? No, actually. (laughs) My 600-pound life. It's about people who are... The proper, the technical, I think, definition is morbidly obese. These are people who have severe obesity who are trying to get rid of it. And I'm thinking, why? What is it about that show? And I've watched it. What is it about that show that fascinates us? Because it would be, I would think for most people, the idea of, you know, again, we all have some pounds that we probably want to lose. But the idea of being so big that you're basically bed bound seems horrifying to most people. And yet we look at this, and I don't know whether it's because we look at it and we say, if I look at them, I feel better about myself, even if I've got a few pounds. I'm not them, so I, I, I'm, I'm not that bad off. I don't know, maybe that's got part of it. But clearly, weight and obesity and size and food and fat and all these different things, they, they intrigue us in some weird way. And the other part is, again, maybe because we're looking... Maybe because we all deal with this stuff in our society. I can remember, I'm going to get myself in trouble, but this is absolutely true. When I was much younger, and I'm thinking like 25, 30 years ago, when we would go down in the States sometimes for a trip, we would be, those of us who were Canadians, and maybe you remember this too, maybe a lot of you who have ever gone across the border 25 or 30 years ago, we would comment on the fact, look how big the Americans are. That was a common thing. Now, we're North Americans. We all deal with the same thing. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a troubling thing. When you, look at the, when you look at the number of people, 2.2 billion people on the planet are now overweight. I mean, there's a whole other part of this that we also have a whole lot of people on the planet who are starving. That, that becomes a problem when you've got a third of the people on planet Earth who have too much food, and that means two-thirds probably don't. But that is a, um, that is a, that is a tough, tough study, that two-thirds. And the cost to our medical system for diabetes, for heart disease, for cancers, for, as doctor said, all these muscular, skeleton... Uh, bad, bad backs and bad knees and replacements and all those. It's, it's massive. But I don't know. How, we didn't have time and the phone line wasn't helping out. I don't know how you undo this now. I really, I don't know how you get out of this now. How do you get out of this cycle with that many people who are now dealing with this? I don't think the idea, I don't think the point is to shame anybody, 
But I also don't think the idea is to say, oh, well, there's got to be somewhere in between. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900, CHML.